Recorded live. This is an interactive, interactive. interactive podcast designed for audience participation. Come talk, talk, talk. text chat, or listen live at TalkShoe.com. Good day, wherever you are listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio today is my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, Joe, good morning. Good morning, Cliff, and our cyber jockey, C.J. Zach Slotnick. Hey, Joe, good morning. Good morning, Zach. On the phone with us uh, is our first guest. We'll bring him on here in a moment, but first we've got to take sure, make sure that we uh, thank our sponsors. First of all, uh, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. We also uh, want to mention Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. The Microband Systems trivia question will be coming up in a moment. Today's guests will be Christopher Capobianco with, from Flooring Answers, Dr. Albert Snow from Turtle Clan Environment Testing, and a special return appearance segment with Scott Brown of Housemaster. Before we get into our first guest, I want to turn it over to my co-host, Cliff, for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Uh, we actually have two microband trivia questions this morning. Question one is, what do French drains have in common with fine art? I'll repeat it. What do French drains have in common with fine art? The second question is what common foodstuff has long been known to have an adverse effect on concrete? What common foodstuff has long been known to have an adverse effect on concrete? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. And we still have a few questions available for those of you that uh, are playing along. We've got a couple champions that are no longer eligible until the round of champions, but check out the last show. We have... uh, I believe two questions still on the board. Oh, there are several questions in play from past shows. Excellent. Excellent. We've had uh, a couple of excellent uh, trivia people. They will be in the round of champions next year. But we need a a couple more now. We've got three in the round, and we will hope for, I guess, five. But uh, if we only have three next year, we'll go with three. All right. The uh, other thing that I would like to quickly mention before we go to Christopher is that uh, we are here live every Friday at noon, except for the occasional holiday like last week. Good to be back. And um, if you would like to join us, you can always join us by going to the TalkShoe.com website. You do have to sign up and get a 10-digit PIN number. We suggest a phone number that's easy to remember, and we've always recommended you use your mother's phone number if you're lucky enough to still have one, and call her after the show. Always works for me. Anyhow, all this information is available at the TalkShoe site. You sign in there. Our PIN number for this show is 1547, and you can also text us messages, and uh, we've got quite a few people Already uh, on the line here, but no no questions yet, but um, I'm sure we'll have a few. Okay, moving right along, today's first guest is Christopher Capobianco, a fourth-generation floor covering specialist. 
Christopher's background includes retailer, architectural sales representative, technical support manager, consultant, writer, educator, and activist. Another activist, Cliff. All right. We like those activists. Absolutely. His consulting company, Flooring Answers, provides technical support, troubleshooting, training, testing, and inspection services to manufacturers, distributors, dealers, architects, and end users. He volunteers his time as chairman of the FCICA, the Flooring Contractors Association, ASTM Committee, F. Dot .06 on resilient flooring and the IICRC. You can reach him at www.flooringanswers.com. Okay, Christopher, do we have you on the line? Good morning. Hello. Well, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. We always say good day because we've got listeners from all over the world, believe it or not. Very good. Well, um, good day. Good day here at IAQ Radio. And and thanks for joining us, Christopher. I um I had read an article in Indoor Environment Connections that you wrote. I was on a plane somewhere and I thought, you know, this is a gentleman I would like to ask a few questions of. And uh that's how we found your name and uh asked that you join the show and we really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Uh, the the article in particular that I read primarily had to do with concrete and um, with testing concrete floors prior to putting on floor coverings. And I'm just curious uh, to start. Do you also test other types of flooring systems, or is it that your area of expertise? Well, um, I got involved selling floor covering, and eventually built up my knowledge of what goes wrong. And on the commercial side, so often what goes wrong is concrete that I started learning a lot of it through my work uh, on the ASTM committee. was lucky enough to be around some people that are a lot smarter than me and uh, started learning a lot about the subject. And I I, I always uh, have, a, have a conversation with uh, one of my colleagues on the committee who's from the concrete industry and knows a lot about floor covering and I'm kind of a floor covering guy that knows a lot about concrete. Um, but the the question of testing, if depending on what you're putting down, uh, sometimes testing a wood substrate is important as well. For example, if you're putting down hardwood flooring, the moisture level of the plywood you're covering and the moisture level of the wood that you're going over need to be, both be tested, the moisture content, so that you know that they're within a certain range. And that, that is a standard that's established in the wood flooring industry. Uh, the thing on the concrete side is that no matter what floor covering is going down on top of a concrete slab, and no matter how old or how new that slab is, every product is affected by moisture, adhesives affected by moisture. So no matter what you're putting down on concrete, it really does need to be tested. Christopher, uh, it's Cliff. What I'd like to do, if we could, is to establish some background information. And what we'd like to do, is, if if you would be kind enough, is to uh, define some terms that we'd like to throw at you. Oh, um, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, what's the difference between concrete and cement? Are they the same or they're different? Oh, well, you often hear people say that, uh, well, we've got a cement slab that we've got to put a floor on, or I have a beautiful cement patio behind my house. Uh, that's one of my... You, that's one of my pet my pet terminology errors, but uh, cement is actually one of the ingredients in concrete. <clears throat> it's that gray powder. Uh, if you had a cement floor and you walked on it, it would be very dusty and would also be very expensive. But uh, cement, 
powder or Portland cement, hydraulic cement, various gypsum cement, different types of materials, but cement mixed with water forms a paste. And the paste mixed with sand and rocks is what makes concrete. Those four ingredients are what's in concrete. So cement is one of the ingredients in concrete, but when someone says they have a cement floor or a cement truck coming by, it's just a misuse of the terminology. Do, do people ever use pure cement? I, I noticed you mentioned it was possible, I guess, but it would be well, very expensive. They're, they're not well, very, no, very practical either, I guess. Huh? It, like I, it would just be like saying, well, we're going to make a cake, but we're only going to use flour. <laughs> okay. Nothing else. Well, the, the next terminology with respect to concrete is what is the difference between curing and drying? That's a, that's another one as well. See, curing is is the chemical reaction when that cement paste is bonding all the other ingredients together. And in order to get concrete from the truck to the floor, it needs about two-thirds more water than it actually needs in the end. In other words, that right out of the truck, two-thirds of the water that's in it is not necessary. It's just there so that you can move it. And so that initial curing is when the bonding starts to happen. Once it's cured, then the excess water starts to evaporate out, and that's when drying starts, uh, or drying starts when it's no longer wet in case of a floor that would be poured or placed, rather, outside, getting rained on. As soon as you cover it, it's no longer going to get wet, then it starts to dry. But it's often said that someone, well, concrete cures in 28 days so that you can put a floor on it after that. But that 28-day is just the curing time. It really hasn't started to dry yet or has just barely started to dry. And so curing first, drying next. I see. And other quick um, definitions, moisture content. How do you define that within this? Well, uh, moisture content, the, the word moisture content is, is often used when people talk about concrete. And certainly moisture content is is a, is a proper term, but when we're talking about floor coverings, we're really more concerned about vapor, moisture vapor emission. In other words, how much of that moisture is coming out of the concrete. Moisture is always in concrete. Even if you test a very, very old slab for moisture content, you'll find it has moisture in it. But as long as that moisture is staying put, it's not creating any problems for floor coverings. Uh, so moist, when you talk about People say, well, what's the moisture content of the concrete? It's it's not an issue that we get into in the floor covering industry. We're more work worried about vapor emission. Moisture vapor emission rate, MVER, is the term that we're usually looking for. M-V-E-R, moisture vapor emission rate. Right. We like to make sure our listeners you'll see the term that. you'll see the term relative moisture content because there is some testing that goes on with meters that people will put a meter down and it'll say whatever percentage it says it's 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 relative to what the meter is actually testing which is usually just a very little bit of the concrete at the top in order to get a true moisture content you actually have to take a chunk of the concrete and take all of the water out of it using heat and again it doesn't really have any bearing on the floor covering system, so it's really not necessarily a term that's important. Okay. Go ahead, Cliff. Uh, would the installation process be properly termed pouring or poured? People, in, I mean, I start to say pour all the time, 
people in the people in the concrete area say place. You place okay. a concrete slab. I've tried to get myself out of that habit and saying place instead of pour, but uh, that's a fine point. But that is that is people in the my concrete gurus always remind me no, it's place, not pour. It is place. Okay. So, but even though maybe um, the common person you're talking to on the street wouldn't understand that terminology, yeah, so you I, go back to poured from time to time, I guess. Someone, if someone says cement instead of concrete, I'll usually correct them. If someone says pour instead of place, I'm not going to get crazy. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> now, there's another common term we hear that um, causes some, you know, that I'd like to have you clarify before we get into uh, further discussion hydrostatic pressure. Oh yeah, well, <clears throat> see, hydrostatic pressure uh, is is actually can only happen on a on a concrete slab that is below ground, where the water table is above ground. In other words, a slab that's that's more or less underwater, and it's it's often uh, the, the term is often used for for people to say. Well, uh, we've got a hydrostatic pressure problem, but uh, actually, um, I did an article for for a, a magazine and interviewed uh, uh, Dr. Howard Kinnear from the Construction Technology Laboratories in Illinois (CTL), and he said floor moisture problems due to hydrostatic pressure are rare because it can only happen when there's a column of water higher than the slab. So it could only happen in a basement where there's a very, very high water table. In other words, the, the, the basement is literally, the slab is fully or partially below grade and the water level is above that. That's the only time you can really happen with hydrostatic pressure. Concrete must be below the water line, not necessarily the soil line, but below the water line. Um, if a pipe breaks under a slab, that would be considered hydro, hydrostatic pressure, but it would only really be a problem if you had poor drainage or, or you know, the, the water was not going to just drain out. Um, but most flooring problems are related to moisture vapor emission rate, as we said earlier, not hydrostatic pressure. So uh, hydrostatic pressure is one of those terms that often does get misused because it's actually pretty rare that you'd actually run into it. Christopher, what's lightweight concrete? Is there such a thing? Yeah, lightweight concrete is, uh, is often used on high-rise buildings. It's used uh, on... Uh, you know, the second floor and up, uh, so that the building structurally uh, doesn't have to be built quite as heavy duty. And also it makes the concrete easier to pump. And back in the, if you've ever seen some of those great documentaries from back in the 30s and 40s, my favorite one is how they built the Empire State Building. You'll see the, the guys with the big cranes come up and those buckets come up to the 50th floor or whatever, Mm-hmm. They pull the handle, and all that concrete comes out of the bucket. And that was just regular standard mixed concrete, like what you'd make a sidewalk out of or whether you were making the 50th floor. As the technology got better, the pumpable concrete became a much easier way to do it and faster and obviously uh, lowered the cost because of the lower cost of labor. But in order to make that lightweight concrete or the flowable concrete go, they use what's called lightweight aggregate, the rocks that are in the concrete. And in order to keep the rocks uh, flowable, so to speak, I don't know if that's a word, but uh, they actually have to keep them wet before they mix that concrete. So the lightweight concrete is actually wetter than standard mixed concrete. It takes a lot longer to dry. And that would be something important for people to find out prior to doing work in one of these types of buildings. Was lightweight concrete used as opposed to 
typical standard well, policy? Well, sure it can because it, it can also be uh, it can also some sometimes be just a very low density. In other words, it's kind of on the soft side. So mm-hmm. depending on what you're installing on top of it, uh, for example, if you're putting a, a vinyl flooring material or something that's very thin and flexible, and it was going on top of a soft concrete slab, weight applied on top of it could theoretically indent the concrete, which would, of course, leave indentation marks in the floor. I see. One of, one of the common assumptions about slabs above grade from the second floor up is what I mean above grade, suspended slabs, they're also called. But one of the common assumptions is that because they're not in contact with the earth, that you don't have to worry about moisture. But because of what we just discussed, because of the the fact that you can have a lot more water in that concrete because it has to be pumpable, those slabs actually sometimes take much, much longer to dry than your standard slabs. And I would assume that, and correct me if I'm wrong, does the vapor emission occur on both the top and the bottom of the slab? It'll depend on what kind of slab you're talking about. And, for example, uh, most of, I I would say it's probably safe to say, and some people in the construction industry might steer me a little bit better, but I think it's pretty safe to say that most of your elevated slabs today are built on a metal deck. Mm -hmm. They, They frame the building, they put down corrugated metal, and they place the concrete on top of that. In the case of that type of concrete, it actually only dries from one side. It dries from the top down. In the type of construction where they actually frame it and and use wood, like on like they you often see on a wall, you also st- sometimes see that they'll actually frame it out with wood, and then as the concrete hardens, they take the wood down. In which case, the bottom of the slab is exposed to the air, and so is the top. Slabs that dry from both sides dry much faster, and there's much less likelihood of a moisture problem. Slabs that dry on metal deck or slabs that only dry from the top down takes a lot longer to dry, and that's why some of the different moisture test methods that are out there now are are designed to kind of find some of that moisture that's down inside the slab. I really have a two-part question for you, Christopher. Uh, first of The first part of it is, does the season during which concrete is poured or placed have anything to do with potential problems, particularly in the Northeast where you know both of us live? Well, it, um, someone once told me that under 40 degrees Fahrenheit, concrete does not cure. So it'll be there, but it's not doing anything. So the answer is yes, very cold temperatures can can have an impact on how quickly that concrete is going to cure and then, of course, dry. So if you've got a slab that's placed in very, very cold temperatures, the assumption that while the slab is six months old, it should be ready to go or nine months or whatever your number is, uh, if the first couple of those months were in January and February in Maine, where it's below freezing the whole time, that that concrete may have just been sitting in place, really not progressing as far as its curing and drying process goes. So, yeah, the temperature does have an impact. Well, the second part kind of builds on that because uh, we know that various chemicals are added to concrete to deal with different seasons. I've heard these chemicals be, be called accelerators. I've heard them be called salts. I've heard them be called antifreezes and, and so on and so forth. And what I was wondering is, is whether or not these additives cause either problems with per, the performance of the concrete, you know, cracking and you know, living up to its performance characteristics, or whether it causes uh, additional latent moisture vapor transmission problems. 
Well, I'll, I'll confess to not being real knowledgeable about admixtures, which is what kind of that whole category is called. Um, but you know, it, it, what it does kind of spell out the importance of is that when you're ready to put down a floor, or hopefully about a month before you're ready to put down a floor, some kind of testing needs to be done because if if the admixture that was designed to make the slab cure better in cold temperatures, if it did its job, then the slab cured, the water evaporates out, and and you should definitely not have an issue with the slab if you're testing it five or six months later. Um, as far as the the tendency to cracking and so on, a lot of that is more from the from the curing process itself. The whole thing about curing is that initially the concrete needs to stay wet. If you've ever driven down the highway and seen a bridge work going on and they had just placed the slab maybe the day before, you'll see it's covered with burlap and a lot of times you'll see they have sprinklers on it. The first few days of a concrete's life, they need to keep it wet. And if and if it's not kept wet, it dries too fast from the top down and that's when you'll see some of the cracking and so on that you're talking about. That was a question actually that Cliff had already on his list, so thanks for answering that in, in advance, Christopher. <laughs> well, no. the, the whole question of curing is another big issue because I field a lot of phone calls from people in the construction industry that are concerned about curing compounds. Uh, back in the back in the day, so to speak, all concrete was that initial cure was done by just keeping it wet with burlap. Someone would come once or twice a day, hose it down to make sure the burlap step stayed wet because that initial cure that we talked about earlier with the concrete forming from those different ingredients, the cement paste bonding the stones and the sand and everything together, needs to happen in wet conditions initially. And obviously if you've got burlap all over your concrete and you've got to hose it down and keep it wet for five or six or seven days, nothing else is happening on that job site. Somebody figured out that if you could take some kind of a coating, a wax, uh, some type of a what's today called a membrane-forming curing compound, and spray it on the surface to hold that moisture in, that, well, now you can walk on the slab as soon as it's hard enough to walk on, and you can start the rest of your construction. You can build your walls and whatever else you're doing. So, obviously, it's a real time saver. But if that curing compound stays on, now it's working against you as far as getting the excess water out of the slab. Now it's trapped in. So... It allows it curing, got back, the curing compounds, not only do they hold the water in for a much longer period of time than is necessary, but sometimes if it's a wax or something like that, it can interact with the flooring adhesive or the flooring adhesive won't stick to it. And that can be a problem as well. So the industry is looking at a lot of other alternatives. Today, another method that they've started to use a little bit more frequently is called a cover cure. It's kind of a cross between those two methods. You put a waterproof paper or plastic over the slab right after it's finished and hard enough to walk on, that holds the moisture in. You can still walk on the floor and start the rest of your construction, and then after four or five days, whatever the prescribed period is, you take that waterproof paper or plastic off. Now there's nothing left on the slab, and it can start to dry freely and easily. Curing compounds are a big issue in the floor covering industry. And is that a relatively new process, or has that been around for quite a while now? Curing compounds? Yes. Yeah, it's been around for quite probably you know thirty, forty years. Um, okay. So it's it's not that new. The the cover cure is actually something that's that to a lot of people in the construction industry is a little bit newer. 
That's what, yeah, that was more of what I was referring to. So that may be what the last ten years or so. Or? Yeah, I would say I would say it's it's something that that I first heard about within the last ten years or so, and uh, you know I try to recommend it when I can catch somebody's ear, even though there's a little more cost than just having someone go out and spray the curing compound on it. It it certainly is easier than coming back later and having to remove the curing compound. Uh, even though I, I can hear some of your listeners saying, "Oh, but curing compounds are dissipating." Uh, this what's called dissipating curing compounds, but they only dissipate from exposure to light or walking traffic, so it dissipates unevenly. So you may have some areas where it's completely gone and other areas where it's still there holding that moisture in. So the best way, if a curing compound's been used, I usually tell somebody, get it off, scrub it off with a buffing machine or a sander or something like that, which has other hazards because nobody wants to be breathing in concrete dust and things like that from sanding it. Mm-hmm. So... I, I, if, if I was building it in my house or my building, I'd be specifying a cover cure, and if it costs me another 50 cents a square foot or a dollar a square foot to do it, I think it's well worth it because your concrete's going to dry much faster. All right. Well, let's move into uh, the area of testing for this moisture content or the uh, vapor emission rate, I guess, would be the the preferred uh, the preferred way of describing that. There are numerous methods uh, available. I've, you know, you mentioned already some people use meters. Could you quickly run us through the uh, different available methods for doing this type of testing and some of the sure. pros and cons? Sure. In the seminars I do and probably in the article you read, uh, I, I, I generally men- mention uh, six methods that are, that are somewhat in use today or historically have been in use today. And the first one is kind of, I say it with tongue-in-cheek, because it's kind of the sen- what I call the senses test. Although it's very commonly used, and it usually goes something like this. Well, it looks dry. Well, it smells dry. Well, it feels dry. We, no, there, was no, there were no visible signs of moisture, so we can install the floor. Um, well, unless it's, a, unless it's a really, really foggy day, you can't see moisture in the air. Um, and it could be at, you could be sitting anywhere in the United States at 60% relative humidity and not see that moisture in the air. Well, you can't see moisture coming out of a concrete slab any easier than that. So that census test doesn't really work. The second one that's been around for a long time, that at one time was very common, and I used to recommend it to customers all the time, is what's called the plastic sheet test or the mat test. And usually that goes with a piece of heavy plastic. It's taped to the floor like with duct tape, about a 24-inch square piece. Tape it down to the concrete, leave it for a couple of days, come back, peel it up. If it looks wet, then it's wet. Of course, it doesn't tell you how wet. doesn't tell you how much. It doesn't give you that rate we talked about earlier. There's no MVER test that's going to come out of that. But it does give you, okay, well, our slab is wet. The problem is... It doesn't necessarily, dry doesn't mean dry when you use that test. It's a test that's really affected by the moisture in the air. If it's a real humid day, you can flunk that test. If it's a dry day, you might not flunk that test, but there still may be moisture coming out of the concrete. And I saw a test, um, a laboratory test with a 500-square-foot slab where they did all these different methods, and the plastic sheet was bone dry, Yet with the more scientific tests right next to it, it was getting very high readings. And that scared me to death and cured me from ever recommending someone to use the plastic sheet test. It's really not a test that should be used for deciding whether or not to put a floor down. Okay, so the next one would be? 
meters. There are there are a variety of, uh, of of moisture meters on the market today for testing concrete, and there's also wood meters that are used in the wood industry for hardwood flooring, for studs, uh, any type of wood that you're putting into a building. The concrete moisture meters do have some valuable uses. Um, in in I use them myself in cases of troubleshooting. I'm going out to look at a floor that has failed and pull up the floor and clean off the adhesive and get the surface a little bit dry, put the meter down, just to get a little bit of a snapshot as to whether or not it's wet. Um, and there are other other cases where it gets used in the in the uh, some of the high-rise construction industries where they're using gypsum underlayments, and the gypsum industry recommends meters as a way of telling whether those are dry. But again, moisture meters are only measuring that spot at that second in time, very brief, quick snapshot of a very small spot on the concrete. So it's, again, not a test that is a deciding factor for putting down a floor. People, installers call me all the time saying, well, I used Brandex moisture meter and I got a reading of three on a scale of one to six. Am I good to lay the floor? And I say, well, that's not a test you can use. Here, let me talk to you about some of the other tests that are much more scientific and much more indicative of what's coming out of the slab, what's going on in that slab, not just a quick snapshot. So meters have their place, but again, it's not a go or no-go test for putting your floor down. Okay, and next the up. Next, the next one has been around for, for a long time, and you'll, you may have heard of it. It's called the calcium chloride test. Yes. And that's been in the industry for a long time uh, under various different incarnations. Uh, our ASTM committee took it on uh, about 10 years ago and created ASTM F1869, 1869, which is the standard test method for measuring moisture vapor emission rate of concrete subfloor using anhydrous calcium chloride. It's a very long name for the calcium chloride test. <clears throat> and that's a test that uh, a lot of people in our industry have gotten fairly comfortable with, and people are using it, and they've been using it. And what it does, it relies on the fact that salt absorbs moisture. If you've ever, you live in a humid place, and you, or you you're uh, having a barbecue in the summertime and you're outside and you go to shake some salt onto your hamburger and it gets clumped up inside the salt shaker, that's the, that's the premise right there. Because calcium chloride is a type of salt. Salt absorbs moisture from the air. The way the calcium chloride test works is that you clean a section of concrete, about 20 inches square. If it had an old floor covering down, you clean it and then you let it sit for a day to make sure it's all dry at the surface. And then you put a plastic dome on top of it with this dish of calcium chloride underneath it. The dome gets sealed to the floor. The dome is approximately 10 or 11 inches square. They come in a variety of sizes, but it's more or less a 10, 11 inch square. And what you're doing is creating a little micro environment underneath that dome. And over the course of three days, that dish of calcium chloride will absorb the moisture vapor that's in that dome. And the moisture vapor in that dome is not from the air because that's pretty much blocked by the plastic. So what you're measuring is what's coming out of the concrete. And by measuring the weight of the dish before you do the test and after you do the test, there's a formula. And the MVER is expressed in pounds of moisture vapor per 1,000 square feet 
per 24 hours. And that right now, that is pretty much the industry standard test. And uh, most flooring manufacturers, depending on the product that you're working with, will want a reading of either three pounds or five pounds, depending on the product. And so that's kind of the test that's been out there. And the the advantages of it are that it's uh, with a little bit of training, it's fairly easy for just about anybody to do. And uh, it does give you a, a reading that is certainly more of a long-term idea of what's happening than putting a meter down and getting an instant reading. We all want an instant reading. We all want something we can do in in, in a matter of minutes or seconds. But the fact is, in order to really get a better idea, you've got a more of a long-term test. So the calcium chloride test will take, on an old slab, four days, on a new slab, three days. Um, so that's kind of the downside. The other downside to a calcium chloride test is that it's really only measuring emissions from about the top three-quarters of an inch of the slab. So if the slab is drying from the top down, and you dry at the top but you're still moist inside, the calcium chloride test doesn't see that. So it, there are other tests that have been developed that give you a little better idea of what's going on down inside the slab. The industry is kind of transitioning into some of these newer methods. What would the cost be typically for a calcium chloride test, and who would would normally do that? Does the flooring installer do it, or does the well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I would say, generally speaking, in today's world, most often it's being done by the, the flooring installer or the installation contractor. The flooring contractor is doing that testing. The floor covering industry would very much like to see that testing go towards an independent agency. And the industry, our industry issued a white paper on moisture testing in 1998 that basically said that because of the fact that the flooring people have a, a vested interest in the results. The general contractor has a vested interest. None of us are concrete experts. We really would like to see an independent agency do the test, turn the results over to the owner or the general contractor or the architect, say, here's your results. They are either with or they're they're either within the range or not within the range of the flooring or adhesive manufacturer, and then okay, now we all got to get together and figure out what we're going to do. If they're within the range, then the general contractor signs off and tells the flooring contractor to put the floor down. If they're not within the range, then you probably are going to consult with the flooring and adhesive manufacturers and say, hey, we're over, what do we do? That's in the ideal world. We're moving towards that slowly. There are a couple of good companies out there that are doing independent testing that you can call up and say, hey, I'm in Long Island. I've got a 10,000-square-foot building. I need calcium chloride testing on 6,000 feet of this slab. I need it in two weeks. And they'll come out and they'll do it and they'll give you a report. And then you have it and it's done independently. You know, if you look at the construction industry, a lot of the testing that gets done in the course of a building getting built is done independently from the plumbing to the electrical. Even the concrete coming out of the truck, they test the slump of the concrete right out of the truck. But we're starting only now just to get into the habit of testing the finished concrete slab before the floor goes down. So for, for, now, most, for now, most of the time, it's the flooring installer that's doing it. 
Uh, Christopher, we have a lot of listeners to the show that come from the disaster restoration industry. And what I'd like you to do, if you could, is comment on some problems that you've seen, if you've seen any, caused by internal water damages. You know, what sort of effect does this have on concrete floors and slabs? And you know, can these problems be just as prevalent coming from top down as from bottom up? Yeah, Christopher, could I, excuse me for just one moment, if you would. I just want to let the other two guests know that we now see you on the line here, and hang in there, and we'll unmute you in just a moment. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, that's a great question because um, whether it's whether it's a new slab or an older slab, it, it is definitely uh, subject to what's called rewetting. For example, in a new building, you know, as I said earlier until you get to the point of of the floor not being wet anymore, it really hasn't started to dry. Concrete tends to be porous, so it will absorb water. So, for example, if they, if they build the slab first and they haven't put the walls and the roof up yet, that slab's really not going to start to completely dry out until the roof is on and, and it's no longer getting wet. In the case of a water damage, of some kind of a flood, whether it's from a pipe or a storm or, or whatever it is, Again, that concrete is going to absorb water to a certain degree, and it can take a long time to dry out, uh, almost as long as a new slab. Not quite, but almost as long as a new slab. So from the cleaning and restoration side, uh, people that are doing that restoration kind of work, I think it would really behoove them to learn how to do moisture testing, to put moisture testing into their uh, menu, if you will, of services that they provide to the customer because if someone's putting down either a moisture-sensitive floor covering like wood or any kind of a floor covering that's getting glued down like vinyl or rubber or cork or whatever it might be, those moisture test readings are really important. And even in carpet, it's, it's often assumed that, well, carpet, because it breathes, quote-unquote, you don't have to worry about it. Well, today's carpet, especially commercially, a lot of it now is vinyl-backed, so it doesn't breathe. And carpet over pad, if there's a lot of moisture... Now you've got a breeding ground for mold, and then we get into those indoor air quality issues that we all talk about all the time. So the testing is important. And I've, through my work with the IICRC, I've actually started traveling in those circles of the restoration people. It's been fascinating for me to be a flooring guy and learn how smoke and water damage restoration is done and see the certification. And, you know, it's been very, very educational for me. But I tell all of them. Learn how to do testing because it, you really should be testing that slab using the floor covering industry standards so that when you turn over that building, you can say, well, here your concrete test results are this, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't ready to put your floor covering down. Okay, Christopher, we're uh, running a little over, but it's been oh, fascinating. Sorry, and no, that's fine. We, uh, <laughs> we, we, that the rules have changed, as we like to say, and we can go as long as we want, but I do have to move along. But before we do, I would like to ask if you have any advice, other than the, a lot of very good advice you've already given, for consumers out there that may be interested in getting a tip of wisdom from you. Well, um, I think, you know, that, that knowledge of that these problems can exist is important, and... Um, my advice to consumers would be, again, if it's new construction, make sure that, you're, that whoever is building your building is including concrete moisture testing as part of what they're doing. 
so that they're not installing the floor. And you, six months later, everybody's paid, or a year later, everybody's paid, everybody's gone. You're you're occupying the space. If your floor starts bubbling or adhesive starts oozing up between the tiles or you get mold under your carpet, now you've got a problem getting those people back in. And it's better to know ahead of time what you've got. And it, and again, the same thing as I said with with the, in the case of of any kind of a restoration project. You know, don't assume that because it looks dry and you don't smell any kind of dampness that it, you're good to go and you can go ahead and reinstall a new wood floor or put the carpet back down or whatever. Make sure it gets tested. Testing is is the key to everything because if you know what's going on, you can you can take action if it's not within whatever the industry standards are. And it, you know, it's the same thing with you know going for a physical once a year or you know you go to the dentist. You never know you have a cavity until you get so bad that it hurts, but you know, maybe if you catch it early on, it gets fixed. You don't have a problem. It's pretty painless. Very good. And before we go, how would our listeners contact you and or your company? Well, um, I have a website called flooringanswers.com, and um, I've done a lot of writing on these and other flooring subjects, and um, most, if not all, of my articles are saved there in an article section. They're PDF files. You can download them, print them. Use them however you need. I mean, it, it, it's something that education is important to me and a lot of other people in our business, so I'm, I'm happy to share it. And then there's a way on there if you needed to contact me, just you know, click contact me and love to hear from you. Sounds like another good consumer tip. Go to flooringanswers.com and look at some of the uh, previous uh, writings that you've had up there. Excellent. Well, love to hear from you. Okay. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we will be able to bring you back down the road and talk a little bit more about these issues as time goes on. And you might be interested in staying on and listening to our third guest uh, discuss his, uh, I don't know what we'd call it, theory, but thoughts on French drains. Opinions. Opinions on French drains, yes. Thanks again, Christopher. Thank you, gentlemen. Okay. Our second guest today is Dr. Albert Snow who is currently living in Stratford, Connecticut, happily married to Vivian for 47 years with two children, Matthew and Anne, three grandchildren, Frank, Heather, and Seth. I love it when our guests include a little bit about their family. You know, always have to recognize the family's uh, contribution to your success. His educational background includes a BS in chemistry, a master's in science education, a master's in chemistry, and a doctorate in science education. As an educator, he has taught and supervised science instruction at all levels, including post-secondary at McGill University in Montreal as the associate director of the First Nations and Inuit Education on the Faculty of Education. Upon retiring, his interest turned to the field of microbial environmental testing and consulting, he helped in the formation of the company Turtle Clan Environment Testing Inc., where he is now the executive president, uh, sorry, executive vice president and chief science officer. Also a member of IAQA and certified as a CMR, CRMI, CIE, and CMR, and also a level one building science thermographer. And uh, according to Dr. Snow. The learning must never stop. I like that. Uh, good day, Albert. Are you with us? Hello. Hello. Uh, can you hear me, Joe? There you are. We hear you very well. Oh, Dr. well, Stowe. yeah, that past sentiment, 
comes from the fact that uh, the more I learn, the more I really don't know at all. And uh, you just have to keep learning and listen to other people and listen to the way they conduct their experiments. And it well, gives you the, the breadth of scope of how to look at problems that you encounter. We we have basically started this show based on those very same sentiments, Albert, and I, I appreciate you bringing that, a lot, bringing that up uh, as a part of your introduction. And uh, I know that in the intro, we did discuss a little bit about, you know, your background and getting into the IEQ business, but I'm curious what made you choose the indoor environmental quality industry as opposed to other areas of science that might have interested you? Well, the idea is that in New England here, that's where we're currently living, uh, many people complain, our neighbors, our friends complain about the fact that their homes smell mildew and they have old basements and they're subject to flooding. And the idea of microbial infections, uh, mold and perhaps bacteria, comes to mind. And I began thinking about that. And with my son, Matthew, uh, and Leslie Dallas, the president of our organization, we decided that perhaps we ought to look into the idea of doing IAQ investigations. And can you tell us a little bit more about your company name? I find that fascinating. I'm a little bit familiar with it, but I'll bet our listeners would be well, curious to find out a little bit about the Turtle Clan. Yeah, Turtle Clan Environment Testing comes from the name the Turtle Clan. Now, I grew up on an Indian reservation, on Iroquois Mohawk Indian Reservation, um, my father and mother are both full-blood. I'm full-blooded Mohawk. And the idea is that we belong to a clan, and the clan is the Turtle Clan. So we thought that would be a good name for our company. And uh, this, this is something we, we really want to push forth, the idea that perhaps people do have the, the concept that the uh, Native Americans had some idea of environmental safety and their environmental concerns. And this is what the, this is the reason why we have that name, Turtle Clan. They were stewards of the environment, if I'm correct. Absolutely. They took great care of the environment and had great respect for the environment. And uh, I guess it's just a natural for you to go into this type of, uh, type of testing and evaluation. So if you could, I, I know that initially when uh, we had met, you were – involved with the Certified Residential Mold Inspector Program through IESO. Can you explain for our listeners what that mold screen for residential property transfers, uh, can you give us a little background on what that includes and how you've been using it? Yes. Uh, well, we find that uh, there's a request from realtors and from building inspectors and from people who are doing repairs on buildings to have their buildings checked to see if there's a mold infection or infusion of mold spores. And the idea is to be able to see whether or not any of these are, in effect, there. Now, IESO uh, has set up standards for inspection, and these are hands-on methods that we teach, and actually we're teaching this in our program, the CRMI program, and we find that this is very effective because we actually make our students actually do some of the individual testings, and we even have had cases where we actually have a case outside of uh, the classroom where we bring our students in, and they actually we supervise the testing of the building itself, so they get a firsthand, real experience on how to do the testing. 
and our program is based on the standards set up by IESO and the methodology and ways you will do this. And it's pretty strict, and we have to follow certain procedures and protocols. And it comes from the idea of how to test for surface, how to test air, how to test viable, non-viable, and also how to look at the building itself. And this is important because the building science is an important aspect of where you will find mold and how do you identify it and so forth. So in, in essence, follow the moisture and you will typically find some mold. Is that uh, an under that's or, pretty close. Or overgeneralization? <laughs> yeah, that's very close to it, that once you can seek out where the moisture intrusion is, and generally it seems to be it's either the roof, the windows, the foundation. Generally, these are the culprits. And then with some of the new types of construction, uh, problems come in with the buildings don't breathe properly, the, insu the uh, vapor barriers are not put in proper places, and sometimes the construction details uh, don't really allow for moisture containment, that is, excluding moisture from the building itself. Uh, Dr. Snow, I've got a question for you. Um, and this is, a this is off, off the mold thing, but this deals with indoor air quality. I'm sure that this happens to you, and uh, it's, it's a challenge, and I'm wondering how you relate to it. You have a client who makes their own indoor environmental diagnosis. Uh, they feel something in their environment is making them sick. And then they hire you, and essentially what they're hiring you to do is to validate their opinion of what's wrong. So how do you deal with someone who has a really strong opinion, such as, I work in an office, they brew coffee in the office, the fumes of the coffee are making me sick. How would you handle something like that? Well, this is, it becomes complicated if it's something, for example, like the fumes from the coffee, because then we would be able to talk about doing a VOC, volatile organic compounds, which would be the materials that you smell from the coffee being made or when it's being burnt, for example, if it's been on too long. So we would talk about how do you test the uh, air quality, uh, the interior air quality, by doing various tests to see whether or not you can confirm or show that it's not so, that there is no contamination from, uh, let's say, spores or VOCs, which would be the volatile organic compounds which come off of various things, such as the coffee coming off or new paint jobs or new carpets, for example, you get that odor of a new carpet so that we would try to, to steer their concerns into the sampling and the tests that would then validate what they have said or show them that they are not correct on what they have assumed. So you would essentially uh, gather some information, that develop a hypothesis, and then go through the whole scientific method of testing that hypothesis and either confirming it or not confirming it and then making recommendations. Absolutely correct. And in fact, by using a very good lab and looking at the results, I like to analyze the results carefully to see where there are problems with, let's say, fungal infusion and also what particular species are causing this and whether or not these are the red flag types of things such as Aspergillus penicillium or Stachybotrys or Chaetomium and so forth. So we want to be able to, to get a fix on this thing because sometimes the mold which we identify is more of the nature of a more benign type of thing like basidiospores which is related to outdoor stuff but also to dampness 
So then we will measure the relative humidity to determine whether or not there is uh, the fact that now this type of mold can grow indoors because there's the moisture content which it needs. But I also want to point out that in order to make sure that we can confirm some of these things and where the moisture is coming from, I also do IR thermography, which can locate sources of moisture intrusion. And this is an important part of the new methods that we use now to determine the air quality itself. For example, uh, many of the times you see that they like you to test this air quality and air sampling uh, to test where the air conditioning HVAC system is off. Now, we have found out it's better probably to test it while it is off and then have it turn back on again and test to see if there's a difference. This identifies whether or not the contamination might still be in the air duct system or in the HVAC system. So it gives us two readings that we can make comparisons in and compare to uh, what's outside in the environment as well, so that we're careful in how we look at this. We use IR, particle counters. We, d we do careful sampling without overdoing the sampling uh, procedures so that we can get a good fix on things and get a reading. Now, sometimes we do this as a preliminary. That is, we tell them that we're going to do a scan to see if the air quality is there and whether we can get anything that we suspect. A, a surface, for example, we'll do a surface swab on that. And then once we get the values in, we can then determine whether we need to do a more comprehensive test of the entire building and different areas. Then we also, at the same time when we first go in, is talk to the people about uh, the residents of the building, whether or not there are problems with uh, allergies, asthma, whether there's young people there, old people, and so forth. So we get a fix on whether or not there are uh, people who would, might be more allergic to mold contamination than others. So we're, we're, we're sort of comprehensive uh, in this regard. Now, I noticed, and, and this is a question that I had wanted to ask you because um, there's some controversy, I guess you could say, within the industry about doing too much sampling and testing overkill and so on and so forth, and that um, the IESO standard is very specific, so maybe we could separate this into two questions. When you're following that standard, you have to do certain sampling as a part of that screen. Is that accurate? Yeah, they suggest this. However, we want to modify a few things, and one of the things that we find may not be necessary because it's oversampling, is the fact that they like you to test what they call, on a surface, a suspect area and a non-suspect area. Now, if an entire wall is contaminated and you can see the evidence on the surface, I don't believe that there's, it's necessary uh, within four feet, let's say, to do a non-suspect uh, area to see what's there. The entire wall, for example, is contaminated, so it's, known, it's not necessary to do to over-test and over-sample, uh, at least we feel this is so. So we, we vary when it comes to that particular quote, uh, uh, protocol of not doing excessive testing. And in some cases, if we see, uh, let's say, surface mold and it's covering a good portion of the wall, we look to see whether it, it comes from, it's on the bottom of the wall, which might be a weeping effect and uh, capillary action effect from a leak on the bottom or whether it's from the top with a roof leak or a plumbing leak. Uh, 
If we see this, we also, at the same time in that area, will test the air quality in there to see if the spores are now becoming airborne from the mold itself. I, I gather from your answer that now that IESO has their ANSI accreditation, that uh, you may be interested in seeing them revisit their first standard and try and get that through the ANSI process first as opposed to starting on some new standard. I would agree with that. Yeah, we, we should because I think you can set up studies which will prove or disprove, a hypothesis again, to see whether or not uh, this type of sampling, that is the suspect, non-suspect sampling, is absolutely necessary at all times. So that there should be studies made on this thing. This also leads me to the fact that I've been talking to uh, Bob Brandes and Gail and some of their methods and methodology that uh, I, I totally approve of. It's very, very well done. And also in the number of samples that you should take. And statistically, there is a sort of a base number, a minimum number that you could use in any valid sampling for significance of contamination. And uh, that's something that I'd like to do more research on and perhaps even work with Bob on this thing, because there are a lot of mathematical formulations that will give you clues as to whether you've done the proper amount of sampling. I noticed you also mentioned particle counting, and that's another one of Bob's uh, kind of areas of keen interest at this point. And I, I, I'm very interested in that topic as well. Have you had success with locating indoor air quality problems using a particle counter? And for those listeners that aren't familiar, these particle counters count all particulate at smaller size ranges. Generally, they are six-channel that will count from you know, 0.3 micron particles up to larger five-micron particles. How have uh, you used the particle counter to help you with indoor air quality problems? Well, what we've done is to go into an area where we think there may be a problem with this. We will then take a building, for example, and we will then do a particle count of in the different areas of the building. Where we see a definite spike in the counts that we get, we know that there's a suspect area that we should be able to test for air quality, for example, if we don't see any surface mold. So we use the particle counter to look at what are the, the counts that we would have in an area and see if there's an abnormal amount of counts in a particular area or zone. And then we know that we can then test with, for air quality using our, our different methods. And uh, we would be using, let's say, microfibes or uh, the Aerotech uh, Zephon cells and so forth. So we, we will use it as an indicator of possible contamination. And do you compare this to the outdoors as well? Yes, we can. We would do that too as well, except that this can be misleading if there's a lot of wind and breeze. Sometimes the spike count goes wild. And even it's it's so sensitive that sometimes somebody in another room or in the same room ripping a piece of paper up, you get this particle. And the one that will drive it right up is a smoker. If you get smoke in there, you'll see a spike right away in the... I had that happen to me once. <laughs> I particle counted this whole home. I came back to the kitchen. I said, I'll do one on the way out, and it went through the roof. I know. And the, what happened there? <laughs> the, there's other, a sneaky one. Uh, if you go into an area where there's carpets and you're shuffling along on the carpet itself, you're going to get a high uh, particle count. And these would be dislodging a lot of the material that happens to be on the rug itself or carpet. So you have to be very careful how you 
use the uh, particle counter. That's why you don't rely on it exclusively, but you use it as an indicator of possible places where you should test or sample. One of the tools in your toolbox. Very good. Well, that's uh, interesting, and uh, I would like to, I, I hate to cut this short, but we are running a little over, and we've got another guest on the line, but okay. if you could stick around with us, um, you may want to ask a question, and I see that yeah, it looks like Christopher is still with us, too, so that's good. Okay. Um, and um, But before we go, what advice would you give consumers listening to the show? Well, the, the first thing is that they, they, if they suspect anything like that they get a distinct odor or if people are uh, allergic or the asthma effect and so forth with young children, older people, uh, they shouldn't hesitate. They should have their places checked. And if there are, let's say, a greater number of colds and uh, throat irritations that they normally would have, headaches, for example, they should test these right away, that, uh, that this is an important time for the uh, the consumer or the, the 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 public itself should be aware that they're under attack sometimes from uh, these different spores and uh, mold. And now they're indoor environmental quality problems. I'm sure you run across others as well. Um, you know, not enough uh, makeup air or outdoor air getting into the home, especially in some of the tighter sealed homes you have up in the well. We have you're a little further northeast than we are, but. Uh, I assume you run into that problem as well. We do have some interesting problems where houses have foundations that were put up in the 1600s, 1690, 1712, and so forth. And you then get an entirely different way you have to approach uh, how you do the testing in the basement. I see. And I including see. huge amounts of radon that we, are, we also test for radon, and uh, we're finding it all over. Oh, that's another issue that we'll have to talk about a, at a future date. Um, is there anything that we left out that you'd like to add? I know we had talked about doing some other, talking about a couple other issues. What would be something maybe that we left out that you'd like to add? Well, uh, actually, it is in the instructional modes and what's important in terms of uh, the different certifications that, uh, that come up uh, through the IAQ and uh, uh, IES. So that is, uh, you know, what are the different tracks and methods and modes to get from one place to another, from introductory, le introductory levels of certification to the next highest level, the next, and what is really required, and you know what can be done to uh, facilitate people who have to move and to need to gain more information and more actually learning, which is what we're in this whole business about too, is to learn more. So you would like to see a little more focus in that area from the IAQA or absolutely from the, okay and I I couldn't agree with you more there Albert I <laughs> I think we could we are definitely on the same page and I think um, one of the reasons I know one of the reasons Cliff and I started this show was not just to encourage IAQA to continue to improve their programs and encourage people to continue learning but to work with other associations as well. We've uh, had guests from well, Cliffs on the Board with the IICRC and uh, the ASCR, the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration, is uh, a group that we plan on having on and talking in detail about some of their educational programs. 
You've got NADJA, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association mm-hmm. programs. You, um, I also noticed that you took the, uh, I'm not sure where you took your thermography training, but there are numerous training programs available for the thermography as well. And, and we also uh, have this, the special thing too is they have a building science for IR thermographers, which is we also took that course, and that is extremely valuable because it gives you an exact insight as to where the moisture can come from and how it in, infiltrates. I'm glad you bring that up because I think that's an area that a lot of uh, these programs do not put enough emphasis on. Would you Would you agree with that? I mean, I know you in your program you put a lot of emphasis on it, but I've gone to several that really kind of uh, skim over the building science issue. Well, that's uh, that's the key to the whole thing. If you understand how the building is constructed and how things work within the building, uh, this this gives you an insight right away into where the sources of mold might be and what you can do to help mitigate them, that is, help uh, any of the remediators in, in getting these things cleared up. So I, it's valuable, and um, I'm still learning. I'm learning about all the different ways in which foundations are made and how they can be the source of either radon or moisture and so forth. And then also even things such as the uh, the, the construction of the materials they're using now, the new materials that they're using like EFIS and so forth, which has been a big problem and a problem in, in many areas, especially when uh, the there's a compromising of the EFIS structure itself. Yeah, I'm interested in the building sciences and still learning all about it. And, you know, you've kind of given me a great segue into the next guest uh, unintentionally, but thank you very much for that. And before we do move on to the next guest, I'd like to just make sure that our listeners know how they can contact you and or your company. Well, the easiest way is to uh, use the email turtleclanmold at AOL.com. That's the easiest way. TurtleClanMold at AOL.com. Right. And if they want to get in touch with us directly, we could use two numbers. The first one is area code 203-380-2708. That's one office. And then 866-380-8009. That's our other office. And while we're at it, what's your website, Dr. Snow? Ah. www.turtleclanenvironment.com? Yeah. Turtleclanenvironment.com. I know I had some paperwork here on it, and I can double-check it real quick. I think it's just uh, turtleclan.com. Yeah, www.turtleclan.com. And I noticed you have a very interesting uh, discussion of the main Turtle Clan on there. So for any of you listeners interested in more information on that, you can go to the Turtle Clan website and learn more about the uh, the or- origin of the name. So, well, thanks for joining us, and please feel free to stay on the line as, as we bring on our next guest in uh, what we call our uh, – I don't, I don't know, Cliff, we're going to have to come up with a name for this because um, we need to – have these occasional times when we bring back by special request return appearance segments. Uh, I guess we'll just use that. Special request return appearance segment today with Scott Brown, House Masters. And uh, Scott is 
by special request from Joe Hughes. Radio Joe wanted to bring Scott back here because um, the last time he was on the show, he mentioned something that kind of piqued my curiosity, and uh, I just wanted to bring him back and see if we could expand on that or expound or whatever the proper terminology is. Uh, Scott, are you on the line? I certainly am. It's a pleasure to uh, join you guys again. Great to have you back. Uh, for those of you that don't recall, Scott is with Housemaster, and he is a uh, ASHI member, certified NIBI inspector, member of NACHI, third-party EFIS stucco inspector. He was awarded the National Home Inspector of the Year Award in 2004, and he was a guest on our show um, about a month or two back. And, Scott, you had mentioned uh, on that show that um, you weren't a big fan, I guess, I don't have the exact terminology, of French drains. Can you talk to us a little bit about what French drains are first and then maybe give us the pros and cons on that particular type of draining moisture away from foundations? Sure, sure. You typically have two types of French drains. Um, one being the interior French drain, which a lot of people are familiar with, which uh, is, is basically a channel around the slab where it meets the foundation wall in the basement or any subgrade area. And that typically drains into a sump pump pit, and the sump pump discharges the water um, to the exterior. Um, the other type is called, basically, it's it's referred to as a linear French drain, which I actually refer to as a surface water drain. It's typically put at the perimeter of the house in susceptible areas. They're typically put about 24 inches down, uh, 8 to 12, sometimes 2 foot away from the foundation wall. And they're meant to catch surface water. Um, and um, they're very common. A lot of installers who put these things in uh, rely on them to be the be-all, end-all of water intrusion. I've so got, you call them a linear? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? A linear? Linear French drain or linear drain. Um, drain or linear drain. So it's an external you, system versus the first one, which was the internal system, that, correct? That's correct. That's correct. So does your opinion lie... With with the ex, your problem is more with the external one than it is with the internal one. No, I, I, honestly, I honestly have problems with both. Believe it or not, okay. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll start. I'll start with you guys are going to get me in trouble today. Uh, um, we're looking, we're having a little fun here, Scott. Come on, absolutely. We're looking for an equal opportunity critic. That's right. There we go. <laughs> um, I'll, let me talk about the interior um, drains and the sump pump systems first and, and, and my thoughts and my experiences on, on these type of systems. First, I think they're overused, like I said, as a method of stopping water infiltration. Um, the problem that I have doing inspections and water intrusion um, surveys is that uh, that type of system still allows the water to pass into the house. Now, I'm a firm believer that in the year 2006, we don't live in caves. We should take the initiative and not allow the water to come in instead of allowing it to pass through. When it passes through, it does quite a few things on its path into the house. First, something that is not typically thought of is uh, one of your earlier guests said um, concrete and block is very porous, which is absolutely correct. The problem with uh, burying a cinder block in 
water is that water, because it's a force, is eventually going to start to deteriorate that foundation wall. You won't see it because it, it could be happening on the exterior. Um, the more it deteriorates, the more water that's going to pass through. How does it deteriorate? Is it erosion? or it's Exactly. It's erosion. All that efflorescence that you see in basements um, coming through that block, um, it is particulates from the water, from the rain, from the soil, and everything else, but that white fuzzy stuff uh, is calcium and lime and different aggregates that are in the block passing through because as it deteriorates, that soil and that water gets a little bit more oomph or push uh, against that block, and that obviously is going to force it through as it erodes on the outside. Uh, there have been instances when waterproofing companies have consulted me. They've got uh, their old drain excavated, and they went all the way down to the footer, and you can see the last four or five courses of block are just completely failed um, because of the amount of moisture that... Uh, uh, have, has been put on the exterior wall. Now, one of the other issues that I have with those internal drains and sump pumps is uh, actually two parts. Because the water is still coming in um, and that block is porous, you're asking the water to constantly go down into that internal drain, which is in the slab. Well, we all know water doesn't necessarily go down all the time. It will wick up in that porous substance. So above these drains in the slab, you'll see that discoloration on the foundation wall. And more often than not, that discoloration is a, a mold substance. Um, so that French drain has not addressed the, uh, the activity of that mold in the house. It's not possible for a, an internal drain to do that. And obviously the other concern is, because that water is still passing through the wall, you're raising the humidity in the basement, which again will allow... Uh, mold to flourish um, if that humidity obviously gets to a point where a certain family of molds can uh, can start to germinate. And you have mold, bacteria, and uh, insects as well, I would imagine. Absolutely, because we all know carpenter ants, termites, um, just about any subterranean or even uh, above-ground uh, insect is going to follow water. Right. You know, it's like a super highway to them. Uh, hmm. So, like I said, other than raising the humidity, and then you've got uh, nothing controlling the mold uh, on the interior. Uh, those are the issues inside. Now, it just so happens that yesterday, a brand-new sump pump was put in an 80-year-old house to uh, contain moisture and pump it away. Um, system looked great. Concrete was beautiful. Pump was actually dry. When I went outside, I noticed that the discharge pipe was a foot away from the foundation, above ground. Now, that's like... A complete circle of water. You're pumping it out. You're pumping it right back in. You know, um, improper discharge is another issue. Um, obviously, you never discharge above ground, but in older houses, sometimes those pipes will discharge into the downspouts um, that obviously should be carried away uh, wherever they're going. In older houses, a lot of those downspouts actually go into the sewage system, which is becoming not allowed by about every municipality in the world. Or if it's an old terracotta line, there's a really good chance that that terracotta is crushed. And those downspout lines follow the foundation wall before they discharge either the street or somewhere else. Again, if it's crushed, you're putting water right back at the foundation. All you've done is moved it to a different area. So the wall that has the internal drain may stay dry, but now you're creating more moisture on an opposing wall. Now what about these exterior 
French drain systems. I, I maybe I was mis I maybe I misunderstood. Um, you described it as being not at the footer itself, but um, what twenty four or forty eight inches or so, or four. Yeah, what, these, what? a true French drain, like you just said, is at the footer. It's put in during construction. Now these linear drains are typically put in after the fact when someone realizes they have a a, a moisture intrusion problem in their basement. Now. These, they're, they're improperly called French drains, obviously. Uh, no one's come up with a better term that I've ever found. Uh, I so like to call a, them. Go ahead, sir. Let me just verify. Do you have issues with the traditional yes. French drain as well at no. the footer? No, I do not. I think French drains at the footer, uh, when they're put on houses, definitely help. Um, now, Typically, a French drain at the footer is not necessarily for surface water. It's for groundwater, meaning gotcha. okay. circulating up from the earth, especially in areas with um, high water tables. Once that foundation is put down, it could actually intrude on the water table. That French drain is put there to get rid of that water so you don't get erosion of the soil, and then you get a cracked footer and a, and a serious shift in the uh, foundation of the house. So your problem is with the ones that are put in to handle surface water. Correct. Correct. Gotcha. Um, now, some of the problems I have with these, again, um, landscapers and waterproofing companies, um, again, tend to use this as the, the 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 actual fix instead of what it truly is. And my opinion is, it's a band-aid. Right. It's it's just I mean, one tactic, right? Right. Let me expound on that before the phone starts ringing off the hook. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> we do um, have some people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, again, like I said, they're typically put 24 inches deep. And um, they, that will work if the water is coming from above that drain um, and not anywhere else. Let me explain. If you've got very poor grading at the rear of your house, like in western Pennsylvania we have quite a bit of because of the hills, and you've got a, a, a pretty negative grade towards your property. Now, all that water isn't running across the surface because the soil is actually absorbing that water. And then the water, once it absorbs in the soil, is going to look for the path of least resistance, typically downhill. That drain being 24 inches deep is going to miss a lot of that groundwater that's coming basically under the drain. And if that's the only fix that has been done, and it's at the foundation, that water's still going to intrude. And typically, you'll see those stains on the first or second course of the block from the basement slab. That obviously tells you that it's, um, it's more than just surface water. Um, now, that bad grading, there's, there's a lot of things that can be done. My personal opinion, the Incas and the uh, the Mayans had the perfect perfect solution for uh, terrible grading, and that was when they they terraced all the areas around um, their temples and everything. It stopped, it stopped the water on a terrace. It still let it run down, but then it hit another terrace. That terrace absorbed some of the water, and then it kept terracing down, and the soil was allowed to absorb the water instead of ponding it all in one location. I think they also used to sacrifice people that gave them bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why they had such good advice. Yeah, yeah. the other thing about uh, those external French drains is they're typically put in with hand core piping because it's cheaper than the uh, Schedule 40 piping with the holes in it. Now, we all know that black corrugated piping um, 
you can lift a hundred foot roll um, in each arm. It's very light. It's very crushable. Um, a lot of excavations have been done when I've gone in for water intrusion surveys, and this pipe is just completely crushed by the pressure of the soil uh, pushing down on it. Um, and when they crush, uh, the water can't go anywhere. They end up moving the water, uh, you know, three foot to one side of the crush and three foot to another. Um, and again, you end up with water somewhere else that you didn't put a drain in. Well, you have certainly, I'm glad we brought you back because I was totally under the wrong impression. I, I, I thought your issue was with what I would consider a traditional old time French drain at the foundation. But that's not your issue. It's the fact that we do have people calling these uh, 24-inch to whatever-inch surface-type drainage systems a French drain as well, which is really not the case, I guess. Right. I mean, I can't tell you, you know, I go in a 10-year-old house, and the seller tells me, well, we had a French drain put in last year. And I look at him and said, well, you mean like a, a drain like under the soil, or do you mean you excavated all the way around your house and uh, actually added French drains to your footer? Oh, no, our landscaper put something, you know, 12 inches under the ground because we were getting water. Well, I explained to him, you know, that's a surface run drain. It catches rain, um, and it's not a true French drain. Um, all right, got it. And uh, on, on the same uh, note with these linear drains, a lot of times these landscapers will put them about two foot, three foot away from the wall. The, the exterior wall. Um, my problem with that is rain still hits the house and travels downward. And it's not going to jump across the soil to try and get in that drain three, two, three foot away. It's going to travel right down the foundation wall. And again, yes, you may have stopped some of the surface run drain from a poor area up to that three foot from the foundation wall, but you've still got water ponding at the foundation. Now, I get in a lot of trouble, guys, by saying what I'm about to tell you. Go for it. In my professional experience um, as a water certification or certified water intrusion analyst and an each inspector, there are two things that 90% of the time cause moisture subgrade, whether it's a crawl space, a garage, or a basement. And that is ground slope and, in parentheses, soil conditions gutters and downspouts. Those are the two things that, like I said, 90% of the time are, are the cause of this moisture intrusion into some great areas. Uh, we've all been to those houses that, you know, the mulch is 12 inches deep and it's sloped real nice towards the landscaping and it's away from the house. Do yourself a favor, get a little shovel, dig out some of that uh, mulch and look at all the erosion underneath it and how negative the slope is towards the foundation. Uh, soil typically that's put at a foundation is put there to make it pretty. It looks great from the street, but uh, it, it's not doing its work. Um, soil isn't tamped anymore. No one tamps soil. They put it up there and make it nice and pretty, and next year it's all eroded and cracked, and there's giant gaps in it, and it actually pulls away from the foundation. I uh, very rarely see, especially in new construction, these landscapers that come in to make things pretty actually have a tamper anywhere near their truck. Obviously, tamped soil is dense. It won't absorb water as easily. Loose soil, when water uh, gets into the soil, obviously a, a water, I'm, uh, let me clear this up, I'm not a PhD or an engineer or anything. I'm just full with common sense. A water molecule is bigger than an air molecule. So when the water molecule in the soil displaces that air, 
it lifts the soil. When the water dissipates, air comes back in, which is smaller, and the soil sinks. So what looks good now, if it's not dense, is just going to sink back towards the foundation, um, which to me is common sense. You make it dense, and it can't absorb as much water. And they do settle as well, I would assume, because you're, you're backfilling uh, around Absolutely. that foundation. And so that your and contention seen, is that we could solve a very large percentage of these moisture problems by just making sure the drainage is appropriate around the home. Absolutely. Um, especially new construction. Uh, backfill is funny nowadays. Um, a lot of the backfill that's used is uh, trees, um, big boulders, uh, caulking tubes, five-gallon buckets of drywall that are empty. Um, and I, I mean, soil does it. Dirt's cheap, but it's not free. So a lot of the backfill is put in, and a lot of the uh, things are put in around the uh, perimeter of the foundation because once I do that, I don't need as much dirt. I mean, it, it's cost-effective, yes, but it's not smart. And once that soil settles around all those big, giant debris and objects under there, obviously the top has to sink. Um, and, I mean, I was honestly, I was just at a uh, new construction uh, about two days ago. I must have found 15 five-gallon buckets in their backfill areas, uh, burnt firewood and all kinds of debris. And uh, how do you tamp that? And the second thing you mentioned, and I know we're running behind, so we'll we'll wrap up as quick as we can, but uh, was gutters and downspouts. Uh, yes. That, are you gutters. saying we should have gutters and downspouts? I, I, I go crazy. I just came back from Florida. and Nobody has. <laughs> they don't have gutters and downspouts. And no. I, I, I always man, thought they were a good idea, and I hope you're not telling me they're not a, bad, not a good idea, Scott. No, they, they, you absolutely need them. I don't care what type of soil you have. Um, now, there are areas of the country that you never see them in. Um, you mentioned Florida. There's a lot of areas of Virginia that don't have them. It, it, honestly, it depends on a lot of the soil um, makeup of those areas. Obviously, Florida, they don't have a lot of dirt like we have in western Pennsylvania. There's a lot of sand in the soil and so forth. It doesn't really absorb as much water. Now, if you've got soil like we have in western Pennsylvania, I mean, true dirt, Gutters and downspouts aren't part of your roof. Just like Florida, your roof can um, function without gutters and downspouts. They're part of your foundation. They're meant to take roof water away from the foundation. You know, a two-by-three downspout can handle, uh, you know, if, if you could produce it, a 1,000 gallons of water a minute. That's, you know, a lot of water. And if you're just dumping that right at your foundation, you know, shame on you, you should be getting water. Um, they have to be free and clear. They have to flow. Um, your downspout should be discharged away from your foundation. I don't agree with splash blocks because they're typically about 18 inches long. Um, once you saturate the soil at your foundation, it's got two choices. That is, go away from the foundation or go towards it. It's going to go where the soil is least um, uh, dense, and that, unfortunately, is typically right at the foundation. So you're putting all that groundwater at your foundation. Um, I'm a firm believer they should be at least three foot away from the house. Obviously, they should be downhill. Um, a lot of people who do these uh, above-ground discharges will take a pipe out, you know, four or five feet, 
but it's actually going uphill. So when the water comes out, it's going right back to the foundation. And just as we just discussed, it's all erosion and water intrusion and so forth. Um, so, yeah, gutters and downspouts and ground slope, again, in parentheses, soil conditions, um, are the two things I stand by. I've done uh, little experiments on site with waterproofing companies. They say, tell them, okay, forget your drainage there. Let's do this. I'll put, you know, an entire uh, bottle of septic dye tablets in an area where they're having water intrusion, and I'll hose it down for 20 or 25 minutes, and we'll go in the basement, and the wall's pink because that's the color of my dye. Obviously, the drain didn't do anything because the water missed the drain. So, again, Very good. it shouldn't be the be-all, end-all of stopping our water intrusion. That's a good good testing method there for those of you listening in. A deep uh, one, too. <laughs> yes, very inexpensive. Exactly. And you don't have to send it to a laboratory either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Scott, I, I'm very glad we brought you back. I was of a little bit of a misunderstanding on uh, what we had discussed before, and right. we appreciate you coming back. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we sign off? Um. Just an analogy, um, something to think about. And uh, if, 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 you, if you two use this, um, just every time you use it, send me a dollar royalties. Okay, if you, have, you got it. If you have a hole in your gas tank, um, you've got two choices. Fix the hole or keep driving and fill up every time um, your gas has all spewed on the concrete. <laughs> <laughs> I know you that in one of my classes that are coming up. We'll see. <laughs> And before we go, how will people, how do people contact you, Scott? The easiest way to contact me would be um, uh, via email. And uh, our email is SWPA, that is uh, Southwestern PA, or S is in Scott, W is in Water, and PA, Pennsylvania, at housemaster.com. Excellent. And uh, Dr. Albert Snow, are you still on the line? Hello, Hello. Robert, are you out there? Hey, I just we had you muted, and I just wanted to make sure that before we go, first of all, we say thank you, and secondly, if you had any, did you have any questions or follow-ups you'd like to add? Oh, when he's back on again, we can have some follow-ups because uh, he hit a lot of the things that we have been finding about gra- uh, drains and gutters and uh, leaders and so forth, and what happens in the foundation. He's right on. <laughs> well, thank you, and I think Scott is still on the line. Are you, are you yes, still I on, am. Scott? Yes, I am. Great. I appreciate that. That that means a lot coming from someone with your uh, your expertise. It really does. Well, thanks to both of you for being guests here today on IAQ Radio, and we look forward to having both of you back again down the road. And uh, this is uh, Joe Hughes saying thank you to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. You're welcome, Joe. It's a pleasure. Our technical director uh, couldn't make it today, Dr. Wow, but uh, we always like to say hello to him anyway. And CJ, cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick, thanks for your help here in the studio. Sure thing, Joe. All right. For all of you out there, this has been the 13th edition of IAQ Radio. And we will be back next week. But most importantly, before we go, we always like to thank our growing list and uh, growing group of loyal listeners. I notice we've got quite a few people on the uh, on the list here today, and I appreciate all of you being here. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This is Radio Joe signing out. <laughs>